Hello, I'm Sam Somson, and I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for listening to this message. Before this lesson begins, I wanted to say a brief word beforehand. <clears throat> In this particular lesson, I describe an interaction with a nameless friend. This conversation impacted me greatly, and as I reflected upon the conversation, I saw that there were a great many lessons to take away from it. Because of this, and because of how well it paired with the text in Colossians, I decided to use that conversation as an illustration. Nevertheless, the thoughts and beliefs of others are incredibly precious matters, and I don't take that lightly. When someone chooses to share their heart with you, that is a valuable moment which is to be treasured. So as you listen to this episode then, I ask that you do not look upon that conversation with contempt, but rather with love and with prayer. I ask that you would remember love and prayer because this is a real person with a real soul and a real eternity. Though we as Christians are to stand strong for our beliefs, remember that we are also to act wisely and kindly and charitably toward those outside the faith. As for me, though this individual and I differ greatly on a vast amount of issues, I am so thankful for this individual's friendship and it was such a great experience for me that I had to share it with the rest of you. With that said then, please enjoy another yet very special Monday evening message with the family that is Koinonia College Ministries. <laughs> Tonight I wanted to start with um, a couple readings, a couple little bit longer readings actually, and I'm, I'm gonna be doing them. Welcome back to the summer, by the way, without AC in this room, it's awesome. Um, but these, I know these are longer passages. I think instead of just like working through them, I think they're super self-evident what is trying to be said there. And it'll, it'll just roll right into the text that we're talking about tonight in Colossians chapter two. So first we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 11, and then we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter one um, through chapter two. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved is as the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. So who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? This past Saturday evening, I went to an Indians game, and uh, I, asked, I asked one of you to pray for an opportunity to share the gospel, and boy, it was, it was something. Um, that, that prayer was answered. But you know, it seems like every Monday I'm telling you of philosophies and cultural ideas which are really Satan's tool to drag you away from the faith. Now, I, w I went and with some people from my cohort, um, which is you know fun, I'm trying to branch out and hang with people from, from school a little bit. Um, you know sometimes you just you meet somebody and you can tell that they are smart without really even talking to them that much. You know what I mean? Like It's just the vocabulary that they use. It's specific technical language that you're like, you have studied something. Mm -hmm. um, and and she, she's one of those persons. She's super kind, super sweet. Um, but I just knew. Um, and, and so we're, we're sitting there having a nice Indians game. And um, you, know, you, know, well, you know how I am. Um, so I ruined the Indians game, of course. Um, no, we, we, we got off. She, she asked me what my favorite class was in seminary because we talked a little about seminary. Um, I, I showed her an email that I sent to one of my neuro professors. I posted it in the Bible questions chat a while back about consciousness and, and um, all these different things or um, how, how, the, how, some, how a neural signal starts, basically talking about Aquinas and prime movers. And so it got us onto a, a classics conversation. And she is very well read, okay? So she was like, I mentioned Aquinas. She's like, oh, I've, I've read some Aquinas. And first off, to come across somebody in the secular world who has heard of Aquinas, but rather has read Aquinas is a very rare thing. And, and the, more, the more it went, um, the more we just started talking about philosophy and stuff. And she, she's taken German. She knows you know, all the way from Aristotle through, through postmodern philosophy. And so, you know, we, 
it, it was it was a very it was a very long conversation, a very good conversation. Um, the discussion ranged from Aristotle to Descartes to textual criticism, church history, theological atomism, um, and most importantly, a literary deconstruction of uh, uh, Jacques Derrida and faith deconstruction in general. Um, these were the important points in that discussion. And I eventually burrowed down to the point where I, where I asked what her governing authority was. I said, you know, because I, I, like, I gagged when we mentioned deconstruction, I was like, eh, postmodernism. <laughs> and then she was like, no, like I'm, I'm a literary, she's like, I'm a deconstructionist. I was like, like a literary one or like a faith one? She was like, I kid you not, straight, straight faith, straight face, definitely not faith, both. And it was at that moment that I knew that she knew who Jock Der Derrida was. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really fun. So I, I backed up and I, I asked like, what is your authority? Everyone has some authority. And you, you've probably heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral or something to it, but either reason, tradition, scripture, or experience is going to be your governing authority. And for her, it's, it is at this point reason. And, and I asked her what her view of scripture was. And in the final analysis, she said, and I quote, I think Paul got some things wrong. Okay. And, and that is where literary deconstruction and postmodernism leads. And it was a very interesting conversation all along the way. And it, it just really highlighted to me all of these things that, that I've been talking about here are very real. And it's very rare to come across somebody who knows that that's where their beliefs are coming from. Okay, most people embrace relativism, literary deconstruction without ever knowing that. But it was fun to engage with somebody who actually was thinking and able to discuss on that level. So first, I have to say it was really enjoyable to engage with somebody who has who thinks like she does. It's very rare to come across somebody on that level. But um, it, it's also a very dark place to have been through any sort of deconstruction. I, I mentioned to her that I had, I, I, I bonded with her over the fact that I have thought these same thoughts, I've gone through these same dark places, because she said it's a very dark place to swim. And I agreed. Um, her deconstruction actually started at Spring Hill when she saw the that the church had caused in high school students, right? I mean, that, and that's common. It either was something with the authority of Scripture or some personal hurt. And, and I told her that I had deconstructed, but that I had reconstructed um, as a Calvinist. <laughs> and the look on her face was classic. She couldn't believe it. Um, I said my Calvinist friend worked on me for like a year and a half, and I said it was only, it was only at that point when I when I understood that man is fundamentally bad, that I could process the things that you worked through. I said, the world doesn't make sense and tra travesties and hurt doesn't make sense until you think that people naturally default to doing the wrong thing and to hating God. And so it was a very interesting conversation and uh, you know, she's not in a place I don't think to, to reconstruct because of her view on scripture. You have to be willing to submit to Christ and to the apostolic teaching, but nonetheless, it was a profitable conversation, and I took numerous things away from it, and I wanted to share them with you. The reason we're going through this conversation is that from here on in Colossians, we are going to be, uh, or at least till chapter 3, Paul is going to be entering the polemic section. And the thing that was going on there was some sort of philosophy, okay? That was what Paul is fighting against. And so I wanted to take away just some insights from my conversation, which I think will really roll well right into, into this. Number one. Five thoughts here. Her inability to deal with tough questions of life and religion prior to her deconstruction revealed to me her weak systematic theology beforehand. Every single time that I interact with people who have deconstructed, 
and have then gotten into philosophy. What usually precedes it is a bad systematic theology that can't withstand the pressure of postmodern philosophy or just academic scrutiny in general. Number two, this is the reason that I push you guys to understand philosophy and theology. I want you to hear from somebody in person, not just a podcast, that it is possible for the Christian worldview to stand up against philosophical attacks. It's very helpful to not hear about these things for the first time when you are in a secular setting or some friend comes along and is like, dude, I, I left the faith because of these things. It's much better to hear about them in a controlled environment. Number three, and this is a conversation that we had at the Indians game, textual criticism is one of the most fundamental issues you will encounter. The primary issue in our discussion is that she rejected the authority of the word of God, which means that her reason stands over scripture. Uh, I quoted the, the famous enlightenment phrase that man is the measure of all things, quoting Protagoras from uh, the ancients. But when reason becomes your measuring stick and scripture is no longer it, then you're, you're going to fall apart. The whole house of cards will fall down as soon as your view of scripture gets lowered. And that is why textual criticism becomes important because, and this is, this is so simple, in order to believe really, number one, you have to believe it was inspired, but the people that I come across, they're like, we have so polluted things that we don't actually have what Christ said or what Paul said. In order to really base your life on something, you have to believe that this is indeed the word of God. It's not just Paul's opinion. Paul has his theology early, Paul's late theology, Luke's theology, Peter's theology, etc. You have to understand that's a cohesive whole as the word of God. And when you abandon that part, it's all going to fall apart. And so you need to have confidence that what Paul wrote all those years ago has been faithfully transmitted all the way to this present day with, with just minor, minor issues. That is a very fundamental point because once you leave that, it's all going to fall apart. Yes, polemic is basically being argumentative. Um, so, but in a technical sense, not just fighting with somebody. Um, so a polemical thing is like, I'm debating with somebody is basically what that means. Define deconstructionism. Literary or literary or faith. There's a popular, okay, perfect. <laughs> so, both, that's perfect. So one is a technical term, one is a popular level term. Uh, literary deconstruction is Jacques Derrida's philosophy. Basically, it's, it's very philosophically complex, but when it comes right down to it, you cannot access the author's intent of a writing. You can only know your interaction with the text, which can basically mean whatever you want it to mean because it's your experience with it. Our goal in exegesis, that hence the word exegesis, is to uncover what the author's intent was. Um, I might mispronounce it, but esiegesis is where you read something into the text, and that's more what deconstructionism teaches. Um, faith deconstruction is just a fancy word for apostasy, which is a fancy word for leaving the faith. And that's more the popular level. Um, I've deconstructed it, which means you take it all apart, all the pieces are left out on the table, and ideally, you would reconstruct it back to something, but most often it's just, I deconstructed what I grew up with and left it. That's usually how it turns out. But the idea is that you're taking apart something to understand its constituent elements. That's the two, technical and popular level. 
Um, number five, the, the verses highlighted uh, something that I want to take for the rest of tonight, the readings at the top. I was no philosopher at all before I started studying scripture. Um, I certainly believe that everyone is a philosopher, a theologian, but in comparison, I was very simple and um, unnuanced in my philosophy. What differentiates her and I, though, is that I was not at all wise according to the world in terms of philosophy. Um, those people, generally speaking, are the ones that are not Christians, that don't become Christians, the ones who are wise according to this age. The philosopher is one of your least likely converts. But here's what is so incredible, though. God made me into a philosopher once I was a Christian. I was subtle and simple and not understanding, but God transformed me into one with philosophical wisdom and true understanding so that I can see now how the world truly works. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. You know, he talks about how God you know, really revealed secret wisdom and truth to those who believed. But for the ones that are wise according to this age, not so much. So that's what I, that's what I want to highlight is... Yes, the wise according to this age don't usually become Christians. But when you become a Christian, you start studying, you start understanding the mysteries of God, then you become truly wise. And so God transformed me into a philosopher when I was not simple and nuanced. He made me into a much more nuanced person. And, and this, is, this is it. Colossians chapter 2, um, verses 2 through 3. I handed this one out. This, why is it the, this the case that you study so intently? Colossians 2, 2 through 3. Jesus Christ is the great and true philosopher. He is Savior, but he is also wisdom incarnate, as Proverbs mentioned, we've talked about that, and the Logos, which John says, as which is the rational mind of God becoming human flesh. Yes. Yes, it is, it's amazing to me to think the mysteries which are hidden in Christ. It is, there's a book that came out, uh, Christ, the, Christ the Great and True Philosopher by Pennington, and, and he argued that we need to recover Christ as a philosopher who told us the true way of life and the true way of living, and, and that, that is exactly what um, we have here. So, into Colossians now. Paul is finally going to start dealing with this heresy. We've just been setting it up and setting it up, and Paul's finally going to get into it here. But you may note that he never defines or names the heresy. He just continually comes back to the truth. He just says what is true over and over again until you don't even know what was wrong. You just know what was true. An amazing statement for how to be apologetic. Just addressing it. And then stating the truth. He comes back to who Christ is and what the implications are for us. In verses um, 8 and 9, we are going to look at the deficiency of philosophy and three sources for that. And in verse 9 going forward, we will contrast that with the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 8 starts out with a command to watch out, basically. Watch out. This verb is basically as it appears. See to it. That's literally all it means. See to it. William Lane Craig said it best, and I sent this into the Hot Tamales chat one time, actually. The man who claims to have no need of philosophy is the one who is most apt to be fooled by it. It's a chat with Josh, me, Joanna, Chloe, Ethan, and Julia. I forwarded a William Lane Craig quote. The man who claims to have no need of philosophy 
is the one most apt to be fooled by it. So often you're going to run across people who say, I have no need for textual criticism. I have no need for philosophy. I have no need for these really technically involved disciplines. And I can tell you what, if there was ever a moment, I'm literally going to send James Anderson an email. If there was ever a moment that I was thankful for taking a course on canon and the history of philosophy to be able to engage with somebody, I'm not saying that she will really be ready to come back to the faith. But my point in doing that was to be able to show that a true Christian can interact with the ideas and remain a Christian. There is a sense in which it's like enlightenment syndrome, like, wow, we have transcended over fundamentalism. It's like revisited Gnosticism, I swear. It's, I transcended, I now know the real wisdom, and I don't have any need for these fundamental basic truths of the gospel anymore. They are foolishness now because you've basically taken a Greek approach to life. But if you were to send a soldier out into battle without any appreciation for the enemy, didn't tell him where he was hiding, didn't tell him what he wore, didn't give him any clue at all, we would think that's absolutely insane. And this is exactly why I'm telling you, don't fall prey to philosophy, but rather learn how to understand it, to counter it in two things, in a controlled environment and with the support of other stronger believers. In a controlled environment and not by yourself, but rather with other believers. Perfect example, Bart Ehrman, very liberal textual scholar, I have this little saying that Josh and I say, don't swim in the Bart Ehrman pool without a buddy system. Always go in with a buddy who at least is on equal ground with you or more advanced than you in a controlled environment. Don't get exposed to it where you're trying to all of a sudden catch up and understand it. Rather prepare beforehand and then be ready to deal with it. Um, because everyone learns at their own pace. Everyone has to work through that very dark place of like, I don't know what's happening. Am I still a Christian? For, you know, that, that those places come, right? And you need to be able to work through that on your own time without having the pressure of somebody just pouring more and more stuff on until you can't handle it anymore. Learn a controlled environment and with a buddy. Um, do not do an environment which you cannot control and don't have a go at it alone approach. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. This is exactly why you need to be ready to engage with the thoughts of this world. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. This is not a very popular verse, by the way, currently. We destroy every thought and lofty argument which exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That is not exactly a very passive statement. It's, it's rather offensive, and Christianity is used to being on the defense. Paul is saying, we're out here to wreck it. I mean, like, we're going to wreck every philosophy which exalts itself against the knowledge of God. To continue with the military analogy, what are you supposed to prevent happening? Here, uh, I'll go ahead and read this passage. I guess I probably should read the passage. See to it. There it is. Those are the words I was explaining. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's what we're trying to see to it to prevent. Not anyone taking you captive. That is a very rare, I think it's only used here in the New Testament, and it's a very graphic word. It means to carry you off as booty or spoil in a war setting. It basically means to be kidnapped. Um, and um, as I was listening to some people teach on this passage, there are some very rather graphic descriptions of what that means because when you were carried off in war in ancient times, it was not like a very pretty affair. 
It, so this is a very graphic term. Paul's saying, don't let anyone abduct you. Don't let anyone carry you off, plunder you, um, anything like that. So these are very serious words for Paul to throw around. And this is trying, he's trying to get the gravity of this across. Because to Paul, leaving Christ for something else is on the level of being captured in a military affair, even greater. Being taken by a cult is equivalent to being stolen away like war spoils. And this is very personal to Paul. It's very personal to Epaphras. It's very personal to anyone who actually has a spiritual heart at all and cares for the people that they're teaching. You hate to see people, it breaks your heart to see people walk away for some stupid godless philosophy that you know if they had just spent a little bit of time thinking on their own two feet, they would have been fine. Right? Young men. What, what was defining of young men in First John, for those of you who have been around for a little while? You're no longer susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. You've overcome the evil one. You've, and the evil one works through systems of thought. Young men, as First John articulates, have developed to a point. And you just, you, you see spiritual babies and you're like, please, just become a young man. <laughs> like, please, get over yourself. Spend some time working. It's not, it's not like you strengthen yourself by, you know, sitting around, spiritually speaking. You have to work at it. So, what is this vicious beast <clears throat> that steals people away from the true wisdom, which is Christ? <coughs> Excuse me. It is none other than philosophy, which Paul clarifies is just a bunch of empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Some translations will have them mixed together because those words are very tied in the Greek. Philosophy, which is empty deceit, is their equivalent. Okay, Paul is saying philosophy and empty deceit are equivalent here. Anyone know um, what the two roots of the word philosophy are and what they mean? What do you got? Philo is, I believe it's sophie. Um, Close. Love and wisdom. Yes, it's the love of wisdom. It is the love of wisdom. So when you think of the academic discipline of philosophy, what do you think it is studying? Like if you're going to go to a school, and the, reason I'm, and the reason I'm pointing this out is the way that philosophy was used anciently differs from how we use it. So let's set this up. You go down to IU, go down to UND, go to the Department of Philosophy. What are they studying? Okay, like biology would be studying, you know, the organisms of the world, whatever. What is philosophy studying? The way one thinks. Okay, other thoughts. Keep it going. I, the, all parts of it. I Googled the definition, so I don't feel bad. Like philosophy is the trying to understand how the world works in a coherent manner. Sure. Um, both by how one thinks and how one reacts to the world and what's around you. Yes, the very simple Google definition I thought it was apt. The study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. So you're thinking about stuff about the world, how it all works together. However, that is that it was not it was not restricted in that sense, during Paul's era, one author, Adolf, Schla uh, Adolf Schlatter, commented that, quote, everything that had to do with theories about God and the world and the meaning of human life was called, quote, philosophy at that time, not only in pagan schools, but also in Jewish schools of Greek cities. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, he noted that there were three philosophies within Judaism. Anyone know the three philosophies of Judaism? Pharisees and Sadduceeism and 
Essenes. Essenes. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. So when you read about like the, the Pharisees, for instance, you don't think, wow, what interesting philosophers, <laughs> right? You think about them as like the religious elite, for instance. But in, in the way that Paul would be using, and this word is also only used here in the New Testament, philosophy was a very broad term about theories of God, theories of the world, and those two were much closer together than it is today. Like the introduction of secular philosophy wasn't so well known. I mean, gods, the God, all of it was sort of mixed together. So religious, secular, Gnosticism, all of it is philosophy. Take a very broad sweeping understanding of that word. So you can see why this term would be wide enough to incorporate cults, any sort of rational or religious inquiry. I love that Paul qualifies this as empty deceit in contrast to riches, by the way. Throughout this whole thing, he's been talking about how he's so rich in Christ, the riches of the wisdom, the rich inheritance, all these different things. But here he's just like, this is empty stuff. As I was talking with this girl, it struck me over and over and over again that these philosophies have such an appearance of true wisdom. For example, I'll give you a quick example. Doesn't it sound super humble to say, I could never truly, really know what Paul meant when he says that? Because I, I just would never, I would never assume that I could know what he meant. It's an irreducible complexity, as they would say. Doesn't that sound so humble? And doesn't it sound so arrogant to say this is absolute truth about how you and I should live before God? I know what Jesus taught or what Paul taught or what Peter, you know, fill in the blank. That sounds a whole lot more arrogant on the surface level. But the more you probe it, you find that it is so empty and deceitful because at the end of the day, anti-Christian philosophy blasphemously states that my reason is better than God. My mind is the guidepost of the world. It is true humility to say, no, I do not know, gnosis, because of my own wisdom, but God had to reveal it to me because I didn't know. That's a whole lot more humbling. It sounds really arrogant to say, I know the truth, but the implicit statement is that I know the truth only because God has revealed it to me, which is a super important point, right, to understand that naturally, you don't know the truth. God has to reveal it to you. As I said to her, what is next door if you leave a revealed religious fundamental basis? I would broaden even to Judaism or Islam because at least they have some objective basis. If you leave that, relativism is next door. I think relativism is the most consistent non-revealed philosophical basis because she was like what what right do I have to claim that this is right and this is not right I was like I completely agree if you are not being told and revealed what is true and you don't accept those as absolutes then yeah absolutely I think relativism is a very internally not externally internally consistent position what I didn't say is that relativism is also right next door to nihilism in my mind which is nothing matters forget it I don't care right because if it's all relative Eat, drink, <clears throat> be merry, for tomorrow we die. I tell you what, though, every cult, every secular philosophy is going to come along and say, I know the deeper, the higher, the more intellectually enlightened truth. Every system has that same old allure as Gnosticism. I had a very interesting conversation with Josh the other day. 
it turns out that agnosticism, the I could never know if there is a God sort of approach, break that word down, that word down. It's not agnosticism like we always say, it's agnosticism. I was like, oh, mind blown. But there is such a Christian agnosticism, right? I, uh, this is a popular one. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of election. I don't know. I would never assume to know that I could understand if it's in the Bible. That's basically Christian agnosticism because you're never willing to come down and say, yes, it is or no, it isn't on any rational basis. You're, to, to quote uh, Nate Gast, <laughs> an agnostic is a lazy atheist. And Christian agnosticism is much the same way. You're just being lazy. I, I would much rather someone come along and say, I disagree with you, than to say, no, it's not knowable. Okay, Those are very different claims. But every cult is going to come along and say, I have the higher knowledge. This has been the exact tactic of Satan with humanity. For whatever reason, humans really like this from day one. Like all false philosophies, what is the re one of the reasons that Eve wanted to take the first bite? To know the to gain the knowledge of giver and base to know the di the difference between good and evil and to become at the same level as God. Yes, exactly. She wanted the wisdom. She wanted to know good and evil, and it, it goes on to and says that it looked good for food, and she thought it would make her like a god in terms of how she could. And so right from the beginning, there has been this enlightenment syndrome of Satan where he uses, I have the higher knowledge if you will transcend to it. Every single cult is going to follow that. Mormonism, what do you need? You need a new revelation. Gnosticism, what do you need? You need the gnosis to transcend through the aeons to the true God. I mean everything. You can go down the line. All of them require works, and pretty much all of them say you need to transcend to a new level. Every single time, humans return, retain the desire to be God. Satan played off that with Eve, and he plays off it with every single deceptive philosophy. So what are the three sources of deficient philosophy? Right here in the text. Element, uh, excuse me. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, to, empty deceit. Kata, kata, kata. According, according, and then not according. So you have kata, kata, kata. Three things in that series. Number one, human tradition. Human tradition. According to human tradition. There you go. It's out there. I read it. What are all human philosophies going to come down to? Number one, human tradition. This can be both religious and secular. Mark chapter 7, 6 through 13. 1 Peter 1, 18. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. These are examples of religious, I believe, yes, religious, uh, religious human tradition. This is how this term is used in terms of religious tradition. Mark chapter 7, 1 Peter, 2 Thessalonians. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. <laughs> For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, 
If anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Tradition, nullify, human tradition, things that are passed down, nullifying the word of God. That would be included in this philosophy. It would be something according to human tradition, which, by the way, leads some people to think that this is a Judaizing influence, the Essenes in particular for some. That's beyond the scope of what I want to get into right now, but just so you know, that's, that's a thing. First Peter 1.18. That you were, when you get saved, you were ransomed from the futile ways that you've been handed down to think. Generationally bad ways of thinking in terms of gold, wanting wealth, all of these different things. That's what Christ saved you from is human tradition. Second Thessalonians 3.6, sort of a positive re- reference to tradition. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Judaism and Christianity particularly have always been religions centered on defending what is handed down. You'll hear language like, defend the tradition which you received. It's a very tradition-oriented religion. But this is also a secular term. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever taken like any portion of a history of philosophy class? Anyone at all? Okay, a little bit. If you have studied philosophy at all, you know that it's all literally, literally an extension of Plato and Aristotle to some degree. Literally everything. Each philosopher picks something that they agree with, expands upon it, disagrees with it, defends it, tries to tear it apart, but everyone's just building on each other. Um, actually, one philosopher named oh, oh, great. I can't even remember his name. Oh, that's going to be so annoying. But his whole understanding of world, like philosophical history, this was in contrast to Marxism, by the way, who viewed it as the progression of material forces and class struggle. But his view was that there was the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. That's the history of the world. Some philosopher puts forward a thesis. Someone puts forward an antithesis. And then a synthesis comes out of it. Human tradition, right? Everything flows from Plato and Aristotle all the way to postmodernism. Are they very far from Plato and Aristotle? Yes. But has the whole history of Western thought been dominated by that? Absolutely. So whether it's religious or secular, Paul is including both of these things in human tradition. Paul's point here is to say that no matter what those false teachers are saying, what they are teaching is human invention. It is from the flesh. It is mere sophistry. To quote David Hume, the philosopher who tore down so much of Christian teaching, I'll use this quote against him here, commit it to the flames then, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. No matter what they claim, Jesus is the true revelation of God, not these quacks. Number two, by the way, that David Hume quote, uh, he hated metaphysics, which is, by the way, pretty much everything that we're talking about right now. Um, in a discipline of philosophy. And so there's a much longer quote about him going into a library, picking every book off the shelf that had anything to do with metaphysics. And he said, commit it to the flames, which would include all of theology, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. That's where that quote comes from, by the way. If you're looking for a historical critique of miracles and you want to learn where philosophers have 
gone to tear apart Christian miracles, look into David Hume. What anyway, is um, basically illusion, um, fake wisdom would be. Um, I sort of think of it as equated with alchemy, if that makes sense, like fake chemistry, if you would. Um, number two, it came from the elements. Number two, it came from the elements. Um, number two here, according to human tradition, according to elemental, what Bible do you have? <laughs> Depends how it's translated, okay? Um, ESV translates it, ES, uh, it translates it elemental spirits. Elemental spirits is how it is translated. There is considerable debate over this phrase, um, and it's translated differently because of it. I'm going to spare you the debate over the issue. But suffice it to say that there are three possible uses. First, it could simply be referring to the elements, as in the physical elements at that time would have been referred to as air, earth, wind, fire. Um, second, it could be referring to basic principles. It literally means to put things in a row, which is often used as a reference to the alphabet. So Paul could be very likely be saying this philosophy, which is empty deceit, is just the ABCs of human tradition. Okay, don't turn back to the basics. You've, you've, trans, you've actually transcended into Christ. You've gone up to a better level in Christ. So please, please literally for the love of God, do not turn back to the ABCs of human philosophy. That is an option. Option three is the most common among contemporary uh, translators that it refers to spiritual beings. As you can imagine, in the pagan world, the physical elements were often connected with spiritual demonic forces. This, this use uh, came about particularly third century a little bit. Um, but So Paul could be saying that philosophy, which is empty deceit from human tradition, which is really not just human tradition, but the doctrines of demons behind these false teachers, which would align very well with the teaching out of 1 Corinthians. So this is a tough one to translate. <clears throat> Theologically, I think all of them are valid. Don't go back to the ABCs of the world. The philosophy is very, very rudimentary and stupid. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Where does this come from? It all comes from Satan, who is the author of lies. So just combining all of those uses of the word into one, there's no sense in worshiping the elements of the world. There is no sense in turning back to the ABCs of human philosophy. And there is certainly no sense in worshiping according to it, because what you're doing is sacrificing and worshiping to demons, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That's dealing, that passage I'm referring to is dealing with the Lord's Supper. How can you who are partaking the Lord's Supper also sacrifice to demons? That is where that comes from. You may wonder, you may wonder why I am so bent on breaking down anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God's strongholds. But why I'm so bent particularly on breaking down critical theory, intersectionality, which is Marxism repackaged. Why am I bent on this? Number one, because it's the most threatening thing to the church today. And so in our time, this is my opportunity to break down a stronghold. But number two, because Paul explicitly tells us to watch out and fight against these philosophies because they are anti-Christian. They come from hell. It's not just cute, inconsequential political or socioeconomic theory. It's a spiritual matter. It's a battle between right and wrong, good and evil. And so there is not necessarily, it sounds again, very nice to say, I would, I just, I'm a Christian. I don't get involved in politics. And that, that is good in the sense that you shouldn't stake your inheritance and your wealth and your desires in the political scheme. But in terms of the ideologies that move the world, that impact the church, that then flow into culture and into Christianity in order to be relevant, 
for the world, we need to be able to, to engage both on the ideological level and that will flow into a practical level as well. So what is the third source of philosophy? This one is super simple. The third kata here, or according to in the list, it is not according to Christ. It doesn't take the brightest bulb in the box or the sharpest knife in the drawer to figure that one out. Human, earthly, demonic, don't know, don't care. It's not according to Christ. Plain and simple. Whether it's human, whether it's demonic, really doesn't matter. If it's not according to the gospel and not according to Christ, throw it out. Um, and may I remind you at this juncture that philosophy can too be a useful tool in the defense of Christianity. I know we're ragging on philosophy here, but it's actually one of my personal favorites. For this simple reason, it can be, it can be used in defense, but you cannot bring your philosophy as the framework from which you interpret, right? You have to let your philosophy and systematic flow from scripture instead of bringing a preconceived systematic and philosophy and attempting to superimpose it. I think it can be super helpful, and I'll get into a couple of reasons why here, but this is not how all see it. How many of you have heard of Tertullian before? Tertullian? Anyone? The blood of the martyr is the... Oh, come on. That's a great quote. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Oh, yeah. Anyone? <laughs> Tertullian. Okay. This is his, like, second most famous quote. And by second most, I mean, like, a long ways down from first. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platon, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for this is our palmary faith, that there's nothing which we ought to believe besides. So there are some throughout church history who have been very against using philosophy at all, okay? But I align a little bit more with the Anselmian and Augustinian tradition, which says a motto of faith-seeking understanding. Not understanding-seeking faith. By the way, those are very different things. Understanding, seeking faith, usually doesn't work out too well. Faith-seeking understanding is a much more likely alternative. That's what Paul did, too. Acts 17, when he was like trying to, he was preaching to the, all the people in Athens. He quoted uh, their poetry, mm -hmm. Greek poetry, so that means he studied Greek poetry and philosophy and stuff like that. So if you want to be like Paul, study philosophy. <laughs> yes. Um, by the way, he's really the only of the New Testament bunch that is that educated, by the way. He's the really the only. There are very few, how, not many wise, not many noble, not many of high estate were called among you. And that is reflected in who God chose to use in the New Testament. When God chooses to use a brilliant person, brilliant things get done. But by and large, it's just simple people who go and work with their hands, to be honest. And, and that's depressing, but that's just... I mean, it's just the way God chooses to work, to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, which I appreciate. I just wish more brilliant people would appreciate Christianity because it's amazing, you know, you just, once, you, once you get there. But faith-seeking understanding. Philosophy can be helpful in the defense of Christianity. That is philosophy done according to Christ. If your philosophy overrules your theology, you're doing it wrong. The classic way, the medieval way of describing philosophy is that it should be the handmaiden of theology. Philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. There are, again, classically three different ways to arrange it. Philosophy is over theology. 
philosophy is under theology or they're kind of equal, right? You know, there's, there's extremes with that. But in medieval times, largely, philosophy was used as a handmaiden of theology. What does that mean? Okay, you're thinking about something. You're thinking real hard about it, and you run out of biblical data. Okay, I'm not going to be dogmatic from here, but now I want to argue for something. And so you turn to philosophy. It's not that you're saying this is scripture, but this is a logical explanation. That's what it means to use philosophy as the handmaiden of theology. So that deficiency of philosophy, what is the term side? So philosophy is deficient. It's according to human tradition. It's according to the elemental somethings of the world. And it is not according to Christ. What is the flip side of that? The flip side is the sufficiency of Christ. That is where this whole thing's going to go for literally the rest of the book. Polemically, he's going to address it right here. I, I, just, I tell you what, look at chapter 2 as I say this. Um, you're going to see this throughout the rest of the chapter. Right here, you don't need humanism, you need Christ. You don't need legalism, you need Christ. You don't need mysticism, you need Christ. And you don't need asceticism, you need Christ. Why? Because... Everything that we have, everything that we could possibly need for spiritual fullness is found in Christ. We don't need the Book of Mormon, the Pope, or anything else to get us to God. Christ, and this is why it's so important, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, how? Bodily. Everything that you have is met in Christ to get to God. Why? Because if, you if Christ is God and you have Christ, then you have God. So why would you need anything else to access God if you have Christ and the gospel that Paul's teaching? Just wanted to point out that connection, right? You don't need philosophy because philosophy is trying to teach you the true way of the world. Why would you need that if you have the God who created the world and the created order? So let's, let's stop right here. I'm going to stop right here to remind you once again. This is brought to you by a Trinitarian physician, which says that there is one usia, nature, and three hypostases, three persons. One nature, three persons, one usia, three hypostases. Jesus is distinct in person from the Father, yet one in nature with him. He is just as fully God as the Father is, yet he became fully man as well. If you do not believe that Jesus is fully God, then it will not make any sense that why we don't need to have spiritual helpers, right? If Jesus isn't God, then yes, legalism, philosophy, asceticism, mysticism, throw it all in there, throw in a pope for all I care. <laughs> you need something if Jesus isn't God. But if Jesus is God, then you're all good. You have everything you could possibly need. Christ plus nothing equals everything. But Christ plus everything equals nothing, okay? Christ plus nothing equals everything, but Christ plus everything equals nothing. Which is why Paul was so hot to trot in Galatians, right? They're trying to add the law. Christ plus the law means that you've nullified the gospel to you. Christ plus the worship of angels. Christ plus, I don't know, being harsh to the flesh, circumcision, throw whatever you want. Christ plus any of it means that you don't have the purity of the gospel anymore. You are not able to walk in that pure faith. But the Trinitarian position, which says that Jesus is one in nature or essence with the Father, is here stated. The word deity, right here in your English Bible, 
The word deity there is the abstract noun form of the word God. Not to be confused with a, with a similar word meaning divine quality. Okay? Well, that's a very important distinction. The first of the two, which is what is here in the Greek, says that Jesus is the being God, the divine essence of Godhead or Godhead. The latter, the other word that is not used here, would say that Jesus had divine qualities or God-likeness. That's a really different statement. So the word usage here of divinity is huge because what does it say? Oh, I lost my place. Where is it? Oh, come on. For in him, the whole pleroma, the entire bit of it, all of it, the whole fullness, not just a part of it, that's important, by the way. Let's say he's fighting Gnosticism. What are they saying? Think of it like a pond. There's the good and there's ripples out all the way with bits and bits and bits of God until you get to the bad. That'd be a Gnostic teaching. So it's not like Jesus is part God, not like he's a semi-good aeon. He is the whole fullness, whole pleroma of God. He's the full essence of God. Now, that deity dwells in him. That deity dwells in him. That deity dwells in him. Does that sound at all familiar to anywhere we've been before in Colossians? Where? Remember how I said that Paul was using the Christ hymn to set up his argument to pull out pieces later? But by the way, if this is a Christ hymn, which he is, which is a New Testament, the early church creed, basically, and he's picking bits out of it to then argue from, this would make a lot of sense. Where in chapter 1 do you see anything remotely similar to this? Verse 15. Verse 15. Yes, absolutely. Keep going. That's this whole section. You got it. Very similar word usage. Go to verse 19. What do you see there? What does it say? Yes. The, you have the past tense in that. Other translations has that it what the full fullness was pleased to dwell. Turn back to Colossians chapter two. What does it say? In him the whole de deity the whole fullness of deity dwells. One is past tense, one is a present tense verb. Which is important because now we learn that deity presently dwells in Christ. Jesus is still deity, just like he was in chapter 1. The baby in the manger, who is fully God. The Jesus on the cross, who is fully God. The same Jesus continues to be fully God into eternity today. It doesn't come and go. Back to Gnosticism, it could come and go. They taught that sometimes Jesus was God, sometimes it wasn't. I'm not saying that Gnosticism is what Paul's addressing here, but Jesus has always been and will always be God for all of eternity. I have said this before, and I will say it again, drawing off um, Athanasius. If Jesus is not God, it is idolatry and thus damning to worship him as God. But he is God, so he should be worshipped, right? If Jesus isn't God, then we're doing something very wrong to be worshipping Jesus. That's a problem. And as a matter of fact, idolatry is generally considered like 
you're worshiping a different God. And you would be. You would be. And that's why it's so important to recognize the deity of Christ. So how does that deity dwell in him? I tell you, how does that deity dwell in him? What do you got? What do you got for me out of that verse? Holy. Yes. What else? Bodily. Bodily. Yes, bodily. Now, guess what? There's five different positions on what this means at a minimum, okay? <laughs> at a minimum. One commentator listed five. I'm going to give you, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to go into it, but I'm going to give you two that are a possibility. I think they're at least reasonable. Number one, over in verse 17, um, the first word, that word body can be translated as substance. Over in verse 17, it is translated that way. In verse 17, it says, these things are a shadow to come, but the body or the substance belongs to Christ. Basically, what that means is that it is really or actually God. It is a concrete reality. He doesn't just appear to be God. He is God. It's not just like some phantom appearance, but he actually is really God. That's one possible interpretation. Number two, I think this to be the correct and literally the most obvious interpretation it is the simplest one. The fullness of the essence and nature of God did not just move around ethereal like a ghost on earth. The fullness of deity was made incarnate in the God-man, Jesus. He was a real man like us, yet he was fully God as well. The whole fullness of deity dwelt in him in a human. Do we have church councils and confessions and creeds saying how that works and how there's how it's orthodox? Yes. Do we understand what those words really mean tangibly? It's mind-bending, right? To think that 100% God, 100% man. But it's true. He was holy God and holy found in the likeness of man. Fully God, fully human. Anselm, beautiful, argued that you have to be fully God to be a perfectly atoning sacrifice and you have to be fully man to represent Adam as Paul says in Romans, the second Adam, in order to redeem humanity, you have to be human. And in order to redeem humanity, you can't just be human because you would be fallen like all the rest. You had to be God. Beautiful thought. But because he is fully God, as Christians, we are, quote, complete in him. And I must say, doesn't this ring true for you all in your lived experience? That you are complete in Christ. Once we came to know Christ, we had a full sense of completeness, we don't need the ABCs of human philosophy or human tradition inspired by demons. We don't need man-made religion, which claims to have new insights, new truths, a new way to God. We need Christ, and we need Christ alone. Read the rest of the chapter, and I, 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 I think you will see these things that you don't need, okay? And we're going to pick up on that next time. But from there, after we see things that we don't need, then you get into the quote-unquote practical section, right? Chapter 3 going forward. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your, thing, your mind on things above. This is where it flows from there, that we are complete in Christ, so you don't need this. And because Christ is everything for you, and you are everything in Christ, then here's how you should live. That's where Paul's going, okay? So we're going to get into these things that you don't have to be next time, which, by the way, I'm super excited for. Think about the four things that I listed that are addressed here. You don't need, let me read them off again, and just think about the way that these are practical. You don't need humanism. You don't need the philosophies of men to be successful in this world. You don't need legalism. 
You don't need a strict adherent. You do need strict adherence, but let me rephrase that. <laughs> I was going bad so quickly. Um, you need holiness, but you don't need the legalistic, I must do this in order to merit God's favor. We do things because God loved us and we love him, and it's grace-motivated effort. You don't have to do stuff to get God's attention. You don't need mysticism. How many times does Christian mysticism pop up where it's like, I'm not, I'm not condemning this as heresy, but you know, you got the John Eldridge vibe is go into the woods and find yourself and like have this mystic, you know, I'm, I'm just messing with John Eldridge, but it's all over, right? Just, you know, you gotta, you gotta listen for the voice. What does that even mean? What does that, what does that even mean? Right? There's so many mystic elements that we add to Christianity. Finally, you don't need asceticism. You don't need to be harsh to yourself. You don't need to punish yourself trying to get God's favor because Christ was punished fully on your behalf. You don't need to hurt yourself in any way to be harsh on yourself because Christ was bearing the full wrath of God. You don't need to bear the wrath of God in your body. So wonderful things that are intensely practical if you are willing to take the time to see how those are relevant to today's Christianity. But I will quote with this quote that I paraphrased to the, to the girl at the Indians game. Um, and it was so impactful for me when I came across it. And it's from G.K. Chesterton. Merely... Having an open mind is nothing. Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Or as I paraphrase it, an open mind is like an open mouth. It's meant to close on something. <laughs> there is no honor in having an open mind just for the sake of having an open mind. Once you have received Christ, you have found the solid rock on which you can build your life. And there is no need, I'm not speaking, of course, of just you know, intellectual dialogue, but I'm saying in terms of what you fundamentally believe as who you are and your guidepost for life and religion and direction. There is no need to return to elementary principles after you have the solid rock of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And I just think of that. Where, what, what foundation will you build your life on? On the shifting sands or on the solid rock? On the solid rock. Anyone want to pray um, to close us tonight? I feel like it's, I, I just, it's so wonderful to be complete and not need something deficient. Having studied a lot of philosophy, it's very deficient and very frustrating. So it's a, it's a, it's a great relief to know that we have everything that we need in one God-man, Christ. So I think that's something worth uh, praying for if someone would be willing to. Yeah. Father God, we just we thank you even though sometimes that doesn't feel like enough. I thank you for this group. I thank you for thanks for family. I thank you for Sam for challenging us to open our minds but also find things to close them on. I pray that we um, take something hard each individual here takes something hard from this lesson and really applies it or thinks at least chews on it throughout this week and comes to know you in new and exciting and intimate ways. Help us, Father, to truly know that we can know the truth. Help us not to get caught up in the world and all this skepticism that seems to be going around in this day and age and especially in our generation, but help us to even in the most dark and 
doubtful of times, Lord, help us to cling to you as our solid rock, as our foundation, as our anchor, and the hope that we have, knowing that we can fully and not fully, but truly know you, who you are, and all, all that you've done for us. Help us to trust your word and to get into it, saturate it, meditate on it each and every day, and help us to be different so that others can see your holiness in us. We love you so much, God, and we know you love us. Mm -hmm. And I praise you, I thank you, and all these things we say, amen. Amen. So ought to be.